This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, March 2, 2012. I'm Caleb Brown. Educational freedom is not the same thing as school choice. That's a subtle but important distinction that has big implications for religious freedom and civil society. Andrew Colson, the director of the Cato Institute's Center for Educational Freedom, made that case at the Cato Institute's recent Benefactors Summit held in Florida. There isn't exactly an educational freedom movement in this country. Uh, There's a school choice movement, which is large and growing and overlaps very significantly with educational freedom. The things that are trumpeted as selling points of school choice are very important aspects of educational freedom. Just ensuring parental choice of schools, tremendously important and has cascading benefits. Rescuing the poorest children from abysmal schools, raising overall academic achievement, efficiency, tailoring what is taught to the particular needs of each individual child. All of these are very important things and we in our research at Cato provide evidence that in fact market reforms do produce these desirable outcomes and that, you know, and we draw attention to them, we promote these uh, benefits. But there is more to educational freedom than the things on that list. A year after he wrote the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson wrote a bill uh, that he intended to introduce in the Virginia legislature. It was called an act establishing religious freedom. And this didn't go anywhere for a couple of years, but then when he became governor, he tried to get it enacted in 1779, and it still went nowhere. But after years of lobbying by James Madison, Virginia enacted this bill in 1786. And what it says um, at its core, it's actually quite a short piece of legislation. I wish we'd have more of those today. Uh, There's this really pithy quote in the middle, which is to compel a man to furnish contributions of money to support the propagation of opinions which he disbelieves is sinful and tyrannical. And actually, at the time, Virginia had an established church. The Anglican church was an established church in the state of Virginia. And this is what Jefferson was reacting to. And he went so far as to add, because almost everyone was Protestant in Virginia at the time, that it is even sinful and tyrannical to compel people to pay for teachers of their own faith, because people of the same faith may disagree on exactly how it should be taught and by whom. What's interesting about this legislation is that the the general principle applies not just to religion. The idea that compelling people to pay for the propagation of ideas they disbelieve is problematic is generally true. And here's the problem. Uh, Our state school systems, which have been around since the 1840s and, and even earlier, compel every taxpayer to pay for a single official government organ of education. Bit of a problem, because in a pluralistic society, we don't all want the same things to be taught to our children. And the result is that you have this endless battle for control of the official schools. If if they can't reflect your own beliefs, then you'll fight to see that they at least don't propagate things that you find objectionable. And perhaps if you can get enough people together who are like-minded, you can try and impose your views on the system locally at the district or the state level. This combat for control of the public school systems, the government school systems, has led to an endless series of just socially divisive battles. The first big one 
uh, more people killed in it than in any of the others was the Philadelphia Bible Riots of 1844. Uh, it's not well known today, but state schools were originally a devotional religious institution. Bible reading was mandatory in almost every common school in every state in the country in the mid-1800s. But in Philadelphia, where there had been a recent influx of Catholic immigrants, that was a bit of a problem because the Catholics have their own Douay version of the Bible, the Protestants have the King James version, and the Catholics were a little uncomfortable with their kids having to do these mandatory readings from the Protestant version. And so they asked for one of two things, either please excuse our kids from these lessons or let us in our public schools, in our neighborhoods, use our Douay version of the Bible. Not so much. Uh, this was not a popular uh, suggestion. Neither of those was a popular suggestion. And in fact, it was so unpopular that an uprising of uh, reactionary extremist Protestants led to two riots which burned two churches to the ground and killed 25 people. Uh, you still have this kind of conflict, although fortunately with less bloodshed, going on to this day. I mean, the, the next big one in the history of education was, of course, the Scopes Monkey Trial over the teaching of evolution uh, in Tennessee, where it had been banned. But we have our own battles, our uh, school prayer, sex ed, disputes over what and how should be taught in the public schools. And on economics, we also have some things taught that are objectionable to, to some of us. This is a handout, it's like the cartoon from the top of a handout given to kids in a public school in Des Moines, Iowa about two weeks ago. A uh, child brought this home to his father, who's a businessman, and he told his son, well, I don't actually shackle my workers, and I don't smoke cigars, and my workers actually get along pretty well in life thanks to their salaries working for me. Uh, now, to be fair, there was an effort made by whoever drew up this handout to provide balance. So there were some discussion of pros of capitalism and cons of communism, but you could really tell that it was a communist or a socialist writing this and just completely unable to overcome their own predilections because you have that little line at the bottom there, capitalism can be said to be the exploitation of the individual, uh, just thrown in with the other you know, facts about the economic system. So I think a lot of us would object to this being taught in our schools. And here's the problem. Normal private school choice programs, the most common kinds of private school choice programs, don't avoid this compulsion. They simply vary it slightly. Instead of everyone being forced to pay for a single official kind of schools, everyone is forced to pay for every kind of school, including kinds of schools that may deeply violate their convictions. Uh, for instance, in Florida, I think it was in 2003, a conservative Christian school expelled a student for being gay. That was challenged in court and ultimately upheld on the grounds that it was a private religious institution and able to make whatever rules it wanted about who it would teach and who it would not. Um, what if it had been a state-funded school? Would liberals and libertarians have been gleefully happy to pay for a school that expelled gay students? And conversely, would social conservatives be enthusiastically paying for uh, schools that celebrate homosexuality. And just think of every hot button issue in the United States, uh, teaching of capitalism and communism and atheism, uh, any of a variety of religions would offend some Americans. 
And so to be forced to pay for those kinds of education, you would have uh, a lot of anger, a lot of frustration. And this isn't just a theoretical problem, because we can actually look at other countries where the state does pay for any kind of schooling. One of those uh, places is the Netherlands. The Dutch have had a universal private school choice program since 1917. And this was uh, a fairly smooth running operation until in the 1980s and 90s, an influx of immigrants who were very different from the native Dutch population started to arrive. Uh, the Dutch uh, public is generally very secular and very socially liberal. Uh, suddenly in the 80s and 90s, you started to get this influx of conservative Islamic uh, North Africans whose views on the role of women in society and uh, whose views about, uh, for instance, uh, smoking pot in coffee houses were very different from the views of the, the Dutch majority. And so the Dutch were forced, the Dutch majority were forced to pay for these schools that completely uh, contradicted their own set of beliefs. And it has created social tension and it has created a desire, among other things, to find ways of regulating the conservative Islamic schools out of existence. Even the ones that are perfectly law-abiding and simply differ on matters of ideology from the native Dutch population. So they're not doing anything illegal, but they simply don't reflect the views of the majority population. And yet they're trying to legislate all of these schools out of existence in one way or another. And the amount of tension that's simmering over this, I think, is highlighted by the fact that when Theo van Gogh was murdered in, I guess it was Amsterdam in 2004, one of the first public reactions was the burning down of a Muslim voucher school. And, uh, you know, that it's, it's a real problem. These, these tensions are real, and they drive a regulatory ratchet. So everyone who objects to something, really deeply objects to it being taught at, you know, using their tax dollars, lobbies for regulations to make that kind of instruction illegal uh, under the system, or at least not acceptable under the system, a regulation to eliminate it. But in a pluralistic society, you have all these different groups imposing regulations to exclude all these different kinds of instruction, and at least theoretically, you would expect this would result in a very heavily regulated school system, which kind of defeats the purpose of a market reform in the first place. Well, it's not just a theoretical concern. I did a statistical study last year of private school regulation. I looked at private schools that were not part of any school choice program, and then I looked at private schools that were part of a tax-funded school choice program. And sure enough, there is a very statistically significant, very large effect of increased regulation on private schools that participate in a government-funded school choice program. So it's a real problem. Now, what do we do about the compelled support issue? Um, you're all, I'm sure, following or have followed the debate over birth control mandates imposed under Obamacare. The people who are advocating this mandate don't mind throwing employers under the bus. They don't mind forcing Catholic or other employers to pay for insurance for birth control for their employees because their real point of interest for them is, is the choice of the employees. And they just sacrifice the employer's freedom of conscience. Actually, that's in practice what happens a lot with school choice 
uh, efforts. A lot of school choice programs run into, either potentially or in reality, compelled support clauses based on Thomas Jefferson's act for establishing religious freedom. Uh, because they do compel everyone to pay for devotional religious instruction. And the reaction is usually to throw taxpayer freedom of conscience under the bus. They look to change the makeup of state supreme courts in order to simply ignore the compelled support clauses or find some sort of legal legerdemand, fancy footwork to get around them. Uh, and I think that freedom lovers can do better. Uh, we can do better than that. Certainly a completely free market in education in which universal access to good schools is ensured by private philanthropy avoids this kind of compulsion because philanthropists would just give to the kinds of schools that they are uh, comfortable with and financial assistance would be provided without the use of compulsion. Unfortunately, this kind of system, though it existed to a great extent in the United States prior to the rise of state schooling, is not a viable policy today. Uh, it's not going to happen. So what else can we do? Well, a great solution was underlined just last May by the US Supreme Court. There was an Arizona education tax credit program that was sued on the grounds that it was religiously discriminatory. And the way the program works is that an individual or a business in Arizona can make a donation to a nonprofit scholarship organization. That nonprofit then subsidizes tuition for lower income kids. If you choose to make a donation, you know, that's your choice. If you don't make a donation, your money is collected in taxes as it always was. So you're essentially unaffected by the program. Participation in it is voluntary. If you do make a donation, the, you, you get to choose the organization that receives your money. And in Arizona, there are something like uh, 80 different scholarship organizations. Some are religious, some are secular, some have a particular pedagogical uh, emphasis, and some really don't have any narrow ideological or religious restrictions whatsoever. So as a result of this, the Supreme Court said, not only did the Supreme Court uphold this education tax credit program, it said that the plaintiffs didn't even have standing to sue in the first place. In order to be able to sue, they had to prove that they were injured in some way by the program. And they were claiming that their tax dollars were being used to promote religion. What the Supreme Court said was that your tax dollars are not being used to support religion unless you choose to have them do that. And in fact, they don't even become tax dollars if you choose to make a donation. You earn your money, you give it to a nonprofit. That nonprofit can be secular or religious and the state cuts your taxes. It never collects that money in the first place. Whereas if you decide you don't like this program and you pay your taxes, that money goes into the secular state school system just as it always has. And so there is no injury to any taxpayers, certainly from the standpoint of freedom of conscience, under the Arizona Scholarship Tax Credit Program. And so they threw the case out. And in fact, there are already eight states, including Florida, that have tax credit programs of one kind or another. And uh, the one in Florida, in fact, is uh, successful and growing pretty rapidly. And we're very encouraged by this. Andrew Colson is director of the Cato Institute Center for Educational Freedom. You can listen to more from the Benefactors Summit and other Cato events by subscribing to Cato Audio. You can subscribe at Cato.org.